Welcome to the Thursday wrap-up edition of Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. Obviously, this week, uh, this review for this game goes far beyond what we saw on the field. And, you know, prayers up, of course, for Tua Tagovailoa. What we saw out there, it was a, a tough scene. Um, the latest news, just to quickly kind of recap where we stand now with his health, at least. The latest news that's being reported is that after being taken off the field in a stretcher, transported to the hospital in an ambulance, uh, suffering what was deemed this time a concussion, and he's in the concussion protocol, uh, the news is that he's going to be released from the hospital, already has been released from the hospital, and will travel back with the team on the team plane. So that's, you know, good news on here. Uh, I saw some people giving Mike McDaniel a lot of grief in post-game press conference saying, you know, it's good that it was only a concussion. And yeah, you know, the framing's probably not probably not ideal on something like that. But I think he's, I mean, there is obviously concern beyond what we do end up seeing a lot in the NFL, which is uh, concussions. And we have another player in this game, T. Higgins, who suffered a concussion not too long ago. And some people suspect even in that game when he came back, um, after he was, he, he got hit pretty hard last week, a couple of times too, and, uh, had a big week last week and this week. So, you know, tough, tough, tough scene there, but we want to get into the details here. We don't want to overreact. I think outrage can be appropriate in these circumstances, although we want to have like controlled outrage, if that makes sense and sustained outrage because, you know, a lot of, in the moment sort of outrage, which then moves on to the new moment of outrage provides less capability to try to bring about some, some change here. But I want to get into not just, you know, the outrage side of things, how could they let it happen? All this sort of stuff, which, you know, that that discussion is out there. Uh, But I also want to get into the particulars of what the concussion protocols are. And in this case, we're really talking about what the, diagnosis protocols are if someone is placed into the concussion protocol then it's a big process it's very thorough Um, you have to pass a number of markers which probably would have made it nearly impossible uh, because of the ramp up because he would have had to have practiced he would have had to uh, practice without symptoms all those sorts of things probably would have been almost nearly impossible for Tua to get back in time for Thursday but the key here is that he was never in the concussion protocols because he was never diagnosed with a head, any sort of head injury. And first we're going to go to uh, Mike McDaniel, who was asked after the game, you know, a number of things about what happened with the protocols, what happened, you know, how, how Tua was doing. And one of the questions that he was asked, you can't really hear the question. So I'm not going to have the question on here. I'll have his response as part of this. But one of the questions he was asked was whether or not he could be a hundred percent certain that there wasn't a head injury in the game last week against the Bills when we saw the instability there. And uh, this was his response. Yeah, otherwise we would have reported him having a head injury. I mean, that's that's why the NFL has these protocols. Um, and there's not, like every single NFL game that is played, um, there's an independent specialist that specializes in the specialty of brain matter. So um, 
yeah, um, for me, as long as I'm coaching here, um, if there's any, uh, you know, I'm not going to fudge that whole that whole situation. If there's um, any any sort of inclination that someone has a concussion, they go into the concussion protocol and it's very strict without, without, um, yeah, people don't vary or stray. We, I, we don't mess with that. Never have. And I, as long as I'm the head coach, that will never be um, an issue that you guys have to worry about. Okay. So McDaniel answered yes at the beginning, meaning he could be a hundred percent certain there was not a head injury and, you know, went on to say that he takes it seriously, all those things. I mean, I, I, I'm okay at taking him with his, at his word here. And again, I, like I'm big on systems and incentives when it comes down to how things work. You have to incentivize people properly. If you want a particular result, you have to have the system in place to do so. So I think we have to really look more so than saying, you know, McDaniel this, McDaniel that, what were they thinking, how they let him out there. So instead, look at the system and see if there's any systematic failures here. Now, the NFLPA and the NFL are both investigating this. Um, From what we've heard so far from the NFL was that they believe that the protocols were followed in a way that was according to, to what had happened here. And... Just to give a little history on the protocols, I mean, first implemented in 2011, the concussion protocols, but there have been some failures in the past and updates based upon these failures. The The big one was in 2017. If we can remember all the way back to 2017, this was um, with the Houston Texans and Tom Savage was really the the incident that people think of. Um, I don't remember what week of the season was. It was in December, though. Deshaun Watson had... Uh, you know, torn his ACL. He was out. Savage was the starting quarterback for the Houston Texans. And there was a play in the game where he was sacked, slammed into the ground. And the ref on the field was the one who kind of pointed out and said, hey, he got down there with with Savage. Savage had what they call the um, in the f- fencing position. Fencing arms, I forget. I don't know if it's fencing position or fencing arms, but that's what they call when you have the you know the stiff arms that are sitting out. And that, what we saw from Tua last night, from those of us, unfortunately, that had to watch the video multiple times as the replays kept going on. Um, and we saw him lying there like that. That's the telltale, you know, 100% sign if you have that, that you're put into the, the, the concussion protocol. So Savage had that. During that game, he was let off and then he actually came back. Uh, he came back in the game later on there. So that's when in 2017, they instituted that any sign of what they call an impact seizure. So in other words, that fencing position um, is considered the same as a loss of consciousness and the players out of the game cannot return. But again, Tua did not have that in the game against the Bills. So that's that was something that was added there. And the other thing that was another thing that was added and this this is when we're deciding whether or not this applies to Tua for that game was that it was that a player who exhibits gross motor instability or significant loss of balance must be taken to the locker room for evaluation. If it is not diagnosed an orthopedic injury. So we did see that clearly, 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 clearly um, from Tua in the bills game. We did see him being taken back to the locker room 
um, for more evaluation. But what we were told from what they ended up finding out there was that this was deemed to be a quote unquote orthopedic injury. In other words, a back injury and not a, um, not a head injury as part of this. Uh, so again, let's, let's look a little bit deeper into the protocols. Again, I, I like to get into the, the, the stuff here, but it's kind of going to reiterate. I'm going to look exactly at the diagnosis and management protocols that the NFL has here. And so if you go onto the, the site here, it has kind of what I said before. So there's, there's a review of what they call no-go criteria. And one of those no-go criteria is gross motor instability. And if that happens, you have to be taken to the locker room and he shall not return to play. So I guess the question there is, and this is why I think it gets a little bit sticky here with what happened on Sunday is he had the gross motor instability. He was taken to the locker room. And it says here, if those two things happen, he shall not return to play. There is this but, and the but is the orthopedic injury. If it's determined for that to be that, so in other words, a back injury, then that doesn't apply. Then they can return to the game. Then they're not automatically put into the concussion protocol. And there is, they, they talk about a focused neurological exam that happens as part of this. Presumably this happened where you look at the cervical spine examination, evaluation of speech, gait, eye movement, uh, the pupils, everything else that's going on there. So that presumably happened and presumably went according to plan. I, I think it's easier at this point to say the doctors and everyone followed what they should do and assume that rather than assume that they didn't, because I don't think anyone's incentivized to not follow what you're supposed to be doing here. But what we're really looking at is, I think maybe going forward, this gross motor instability question may have to revise that a little bit and be a little bit more, um, a little bit more stringent on the ability to return to play. Because let's face it, like if you're having gross motor instability because of a back issue, and according to Tua, this, it first started where he was going for a sneak early in the game and he got injured and that's what messed up his back. And then it, it seized up as part of that play against the bills. But if you're having gross motor instability, if you can't stand up straight because of a back issue, you know, maybe that should be sufficient for not going back into the game. Even if it's not part of the concussion protocol, maybe it's part of a larger injury protocol that they could have. And you wouldn't have necessarily the confusion in these sorts of matters. Um, that's a potential we're talking about by, by how we can enhance this, but, you know, just, just yelling at the, at Mike McDaniel or others about what happened, I don't think is the right thing to do here. Cause I do take them seriously and at their word that they're trying to do the best that they could in this particular situation. I mean, we have a situation again, where we're looking outside of concussions. We're just looking at player safety. Generally, uh, we had, you know, Justin Herbert coming back into the game after he had that, uh, broken rib cartilage which wasn't even really diagnosed at that point against Kansas City uh you know playing the next week and staying in the game when they're down 38 to 10 <laughs> you know running i think he dropped back the pass 12 or 12 times on their last drive there when they were getting killed so to say we're going to like fix the mentality of these players or how they approach the game or what happens in the NFL with 
players, if you're cleared, you play sort of situation. I think that is a bridge too far to figure out what we're going to do here. But we can enhance the protocols, and that would be my suggestion for what to do here. Now, I will say also, and maybe I'm maybe I'm like defending the NFL and Mike McDaniel too much. You know, maybe I'm like Rob Lowe with that NFL hat on right now. Um, but I just think it's important context against the, the, the easier thing was just to say they, they fucked up, which I think that's perfectly logical too. Again, I'm just trying to build the, the context around it, but I think there also has to be at least an acknowledgement that like the type of hit that Tua took last night, if you watched it, it was like a ragdoll situation. He was spun around, picked up, and slammed back on his back and the back of the head hitting the ground. Now, the back of the head did hit the ground on the initial uh, probable or possible concussion hit against the, the Bills. But this was a much more violent situation. Um, I think we have to look at the possibility that it is possible that he did not – that they are not related. That him being slammed back down the way he was, I think – was a probable concussion situation no matter what his state was coming into the game. So that's also important context to at least think about when we're going through and and ranging all the motions. But what I would suggest is that that would be my, my suggestion would be the gross motor instability, add that as a no-go, at least to come back into the game, for sure to come back into the game. And then, again, another evaluation and more talks, more conversations, more studies, more uh, rules about the short week situations where if you are held out of the rest of the game, and let's say like Tua should have been held out of the rest of the game after the gross motor instability. If you're held out of the rest of the game, then maybe we could also say that's a no-go for going back and playing on Thursday, no matter what the injury situation is. I think that is also a good proposal at least to look at here let's incentivize them let's make proposals let's get the rules in check first rather than just saying they should have known better and that they didn't know better uh you know we're going to castigate them for that sort of thing that would be my that's my take on to a injury situation but again we'll see you know we have a long window before the next game and we've seen players come back even from this fencing position, you know, in one week sometimes. Um, so I think we're going to get into this conversation all over again in 10 days when the Miami Dolphins are back on the field again, uh, whether or not it, they're going to turn to Teddy Bridgewater again there. It, it's a long window and he probably can get cleared via the concussion protocol. So we'll hear about this, I'm sure, more going into that game. All right. With that out of the way, we can get to some of the review-ish sort of stuff that I do normally in this game. It's a little bit difficult to, you know, figure everything out here. It wasn't a real sort of contest with Tua out for most of the game and Teddy Bridgewater in the game. But we can we can go through some of the the numbers here just to get an idea of what we saw in the field versus what the final score was. Uh, let me just get up here to the particulars. So this game, Cincinnati was a four-point favorite on this one. And that had moved from, I think, one and a half all the way up. And it kept on going. Again, if, if two was healthy, that was probably a little bit too much. But 
there was imputed into it. I don't think the, the head injury stuff as much as the back and the foot and his ability to get knocked out and his ability to throw the ball well in that circumstance, along with the defense having played 90 plays the week before. And I think that showed. I think the defense showed in its inability to convert pressures to sacks on Burrow and in its uh, inability to kind of stay up with some of the receivers, although the receiving core for the Bengals is extremely strong. So the score is 27-15, final score. My adjusted score is 27-20, to so fairly close, but still. Seven points is a healthy amount and healthy differential there. Um, good success rate for the Bengals, but the issue here for them, and what we'll see about this going forward, is you know they're in the 65th percentile overall in their success rate, but it was 85th for dropping back to pass and only 28th when it came to... Um, when it came to their running, their designed run numbers and continued struggles for Joe Mixon. I mean, 24 carries. So he got a lot of carries. They ran the ball a lot because they had the lead throughout most of the game. You know, 24 carries for 61 yards for for Mixon in this game. Did convert four first downs, did get that touchdown, but just generally, you know, 2.5 yards per carry and um, inability on first and 10, losing expected points the vast majority of the time. Not great. Not great situation there. Uh, Burrow, one thing I'll point out about Burrow in this game is he didn't face a ton of pressure. So I don't know how much he's regulating this versus it's just circumstance. But ball out of his hands, I felt a lot more quickly. He was doing that. Although he hadn't been, you know, he wasn't one of these like three second time to throw type of dudes this season, but still 2.4 seconds in this game. So that's pretty fast. He took one sack in this game. And if you look at the, the, um, you can say evolution as a season has gone by, I think that number, that sack number that we're going to talk a lot about for Burrow I think we have to we have to look more at like maybe some things are getting fixed. I mean, his offensive line graded very poorly in this game, but maybe some things are getting fixed at least from his uh, his temperament and in the pocket and his ability to get the ball out a little bit earlier because he has 17 sacks on the season, so that's a huge number. Everyone's going to focus on that. But if we go game by game here, he had eight in the first game against the Steelers in that overtime game also. So he had a lot of dropbacks, six against the Cowboys and the Cowboys, you know, have a quite a good pass rush in the next game. He had two last week, one last night. So those are pretty good numbers. He's trending heavily in the right direction. And also we have to think that some of the sack problems earlier were a function of the pa- the pass rushes that he was facing versus his pro- versus the protection that he was getting, but still poorly graded numbers last night. Uh, Lael Collins, who I've highlighted before with a 35 grade here. Um, he was beaten six different times during this game by, by the defender on here. He has really struggled a lot for a new guy that they brought in there. Um, not, not getting their, their money's worth so far from, from Collins this season. Um, Teddy, you know, Teddy was Teddy. I don't really have too much to, to say about that. Had a couple of turnover-worthy plays. One of them was an actual interception. These grades, which are not final or not finalized yet, he graded it a 61. And Burrow was at for passing grade. And Burrow was only at a 72, which I'm surprised by because I feel like this was a pretty big game for him. That may be revised up when 
the second review goes here to look at Burrow because he has three big time throws here and no turnover worthy plays. So I'm surprised that number is not a bit higher being that he was efficient. I mean, 9.5 yards per attempt too. So if you don't have the turnover worthy plays, you don't have the sacks, you have 9.5 yards per attempt. That all comes out to about 0.25 EPA per play for Burrow. And that's a strong number. It's not, you know, a, uh, 90th percentile type of number, but it's well into the 80s for one particular game. And if you sustain that over the course of the season, you know, he'd be in the MVP race. So a good good turnaround for Burrow in this game. Now, updated playoff situation here. The Bengals are now up to 53% to make the playoffs. So they're above 50% now to make the playoffs as they take their record to two and two. The Dolphins, and again, we're going to have to figure out adjustments and everything here. They fall a bit from around 80-something percent to make the playoffs to 70% after this game, although it was not a game that they were forecast to win. It was not a game that they were favored in, but it's still something to think about here. And their chance to win the division falls to 30%. So we still have, we have the Bills at about 61% chance to win that division Miami, uh, the AFC East, Miami now at 31%, and the rest of it is a sprinkling. Uh, on, <laughs> I don't know. The Jets can't have anything, right? Let's see. The Jets, 2%. So I guess I guess the Jets can actually have a little something there. And the Patriots at 6%. Uh, it's, it's getting tough for the Patriots, especially with Brian Hoyer in there for at least a couple of weeks. Um. Yeah, again, you know, I, we had the review of the the concussion situation. We had the review of the game. And the Bengals, I think we have to just realize now, like, who are they or who are Miami going forward? That's probably one other discussion to think about. I gave you the probabilities. The probabilities are based on what we believe in our in our power rankings and my power rankings that I build off of what's happened so far this season. And even going into this game, while Miami had been – the third best team, according to my numbers, my adjusted scores and numbers going into this game, um, plus they had the hardest schedule in the NFL going into this game, they they were still about eighth or ninth overall when you build in the prior of how good the team is. And Cincinnati was around 11th, 12th, 13th at that point in time. So not that big of a difference between these two teams generally going into this game. And things don't change wholeheartedly. Uh, after this game but you know be wary of anyone that's telling you that after you know that you see some different power rankings in the media anyone telling you that Miami was the number one team and uh, you know Cincinnati they probably are about right on Cincinnati's uh, ranking going into this game but then you know you look up at the at the Vegas numbers and they're seen as about being equal teams not only in this game but even going forward for future lines that were going into it so it wasn't just all about the injury and rest concerns why uh, Cincinnati was favored in this particular game. All right, before I get on to a few recommendations for recreational purposes, best bets for this weekend, hey, let's talk DraftKings. Appropriate uh, segue here for once on this podcast. NFL action is in full swing at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. We're talking touchdowns, big plays, and even bigger wins. New customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. If that's not enough, everyone can boost their winnings with DraftKings stepped-up same-game parlays. Right now, for every leg you add, you can boost your winnings up to 100% with bigger payouts than ever. Why bet on football anywhere else? To make things even sweeter, you can throw down on stepped-up same-game parlays once 
per game day all season long. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF to get $200 in free bets if your team wins. When you place a $5 bet on any football game, that's code PFF. Only a DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for detail. And, la- and another one here. The Unexpected Points podcast is now sponsored by Western and Southern Financial Group. While you focus on your roster moves, Western and Southern helps advance your money moves. Buying your first home, planning to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow. Western and Southern's playbook of life insurance, investment, and retirement solutions helps you rest assured on game day. Team up to understand needs and address goals. With a game plan built just for you, get started at westernandsouthern.com. And one last thing here. PFF app available. Go get it. Live it. Get it. Fantasy football advice, betting dashboards. Some of the stuff I'm going to be talking about here agrees with our green line betting system here. One bet in particular shows some value via green line on a side, which we don't normally see that much because those are a lot tougher to find value on than player props. Um, so check it out. The In your app store, PFF app is available. All right. Let's get into this weekend's game. So my process, let me get into my process a little bit here. I know you guys love process talk. My process figuring out what games I'm interested in is looking at my adjusted score information so far this season. So again, those that's the information which makes adjustments based upon success rate, leaning on that a little bit more heavily than what the actual results are, and then making adjustments on the higher variance plays like special teams, fumble recovery luck, things like that. Um, and then through that, I get an idea of teams' offensive and defensive strength off of, uh, off of these numbers. Uh, I make some pace adjustments because, of course, pace comes into what's happened so far in these games. And then I combine that with preseason going into the year what's my prior on these teams what was my prior on how good the quarterbacks are make an adjustment on that versus how well they've played so far this year each week more and more of the evidence that we've seen during the season becomes a bigger part of what we're doing now right now i'm about 60 percent what we've seen in the season versus 40 percent prior after three weeks it's funny because my it still trails out for the rest of the season but i have adjusted versus prior years. Um, Sorry, I'm confusing prior and prior here. But versus previous years, I have adjusted to lessen how much my preseason prior and numbers goes into it. Uh, I know friend of the podcast, Rob Pozzola, who's been on here a couple different times. I believe he has no prior in his numbers anymore um, after week three or four. So he's, he's a little bit more aggressive than I am. But I'm becoming more aggressive than I've been in the past, uh, seeing how, you know, additions, we see wide receiver additions this year. They're having a more sustained effect on how well teams will play. And then quarterbacks, we've also seen quarterbacks make very rapid improvement over year over year, maybe like a Trevor Lawrence, this sort of year, where you really have to discount that prior quite a bit in certain situations. And I've been starting to do that more and more. But that said, the preseason priors are definitely going to fall into some of the games that I'm looking at and I'm interested in uh, for this week. So the first one here is the Arizona Cardinals at the Carolina Panthers. And you know, Car- Arizona's been bad. Um, offensively, not great. According to 
the numbers that that I have for them so far this year. They're in my power rankings. They're all the way down at 12th or 13th, depending upon how you look at it, basically. But you could go all the way down almost to 16th as far as how they've played this year. There is an adjustment there for them having the second hardest schedule year to date um, because their actual numbers are more in the 20s, how they played offensively and defensively. But I have them more around middle of the league as far as how they played so far this year because they've had the second hardest schedule in the NFL. Kansas City, you know, they played the Rams. They played the Raiders, who are not just a total walkover sort of team. So they've had a pretty tough schedule so far this year. Carolina, on the other hand, I have them being dead last as far as how they've played so far this year in my power rankings. They've had the 20th most difficult schedule. So they haven't had that difficult a schedule, yet their offensive ranking is last, according to my adjusted numbers. Their success rate is just bad, bad. Way last in success rate. And the only thing that's been saving them so far this year offensively is big plays. They had the very long touchdown to Robbie Anderson in week one. And then last week, LaVisca Chenault had the, you know, basically a flare out wide receiver screen-ish, whatever you want to call it, pass that he took for 75 yards. And then he had another play where he had 20 yards after the catch. Baker had something like 180 yards passing last week and 135 of it was yards after the catch. They're really, really struggling. Now their defense is not bad. So the defense could give Kyler trouble, but I think, offensively for the Cardinals, they're eventually going to have to turn Kyler loose. And maybe this is on him a bit here, a bit more on the ground. He's, he's averaging, you know, fewer than um, 25 yards per game on the ground right now. He's about 20 yards per game on the ground. He only had eight rushing yards last game. That needs to step up. Uh, they need to start pushing the ball down the field a bit more. They've been using Marquise Brown more as a target hog type of guy than someone who's going down the field. I think that needs to change a little bit. And I think they should have a chance to do this. The Carolina defense, again, good, not great, and have played a very weak schedule so far in this game. So these would be teams that, so far this season, there's been a differential, according to my numbers, of maybe about four points per game better for Arizona. And then my prior on them is much, much better than that. So to see a, a, the the Panthers being favored in this game, and again, you know, one point in either direction doesn't really matter. So one and a half points towards Carolina versus one and a half points towards Arizona, it's not a big, huge deal. But I would have this line being at least, you know, three towards Arizona, which would be a big key number. So the fact that we're not going to get anywhere close to that puts Arizona as a play for me this week. All right. Uh, second here, this may actually be my strongest one. This is the one that Green Line agrees with. Our Green Line service agrees with here is the Tennessee Titans as three and a half point underdogs at the Indianapolis Colts. I would have this as more like a pick em in this game. I have Tennessee as being a better team right now, primarily because Ryan Tannehill has been good this year. Now, he was awful in the Buffalo game that a lot of us saw, but the games that we didn't see against the Raiders and then, um, who did they play last week? Against the Raiders and then, uh, let me pull that up. I don't know why I'm, I'm having a brain fart right here. Um, against the Raiders and against, well, anyway, so he had great numbers so far this year. It's really been the running game. That's been bothersome, although Derrick Henry got it turned around a little bit here. Um, and what 
the question is for this one is Indianapolis. Like that's the one you're really looking at and saying, okay, what's our prior? What's our prior on the Colts versus what we've seen? Because last week, 3.8 yards per play. Um, as far as they've, oh yeah, they played the Giants in week one. Jeez, I can't believe I forgot that. Um, I mean, forgettable game, but they played the Giants in week one. And, and again, in that game, I had them as being the better team slightly in that game, despite the fact that that they lost there. So looking again at what we think about these teams here for Tennessee, they're about middle of the pack, according to how they played so far, according to my, my numbers, they started the season for my prior as about being middle of the pack. Indianapolis, they, their numbers so far this season are much worse. I have them as being 28th, tied for 28th as far as how good they've been so far this season. 23rd in strength of schedule, pretty easy schedule. Their defense has been bad though, and their offense has been a little bit better according to my adjusted scores, and it's been horrible. And I think the adjusted scores, if there is a flaw in what I'm doing with adjusted scores and heavily weighting success rate, it is the assumption that we're going to see some sort of regression when it comes to outlier big plays. So if you're having a high success rate event and you're not getting big plays, so your actual results are down, that eventually those big plays will come and vice versa. If your success rate is low and you're getting a bunch of big plays so that your results are really, really good, eventually that will come down. Will the Colts ever get big plays outside of Jonathan Taylor? Long rushes, that's probably their number one window here to getting a big play. Looking at the way that Matt Ryan is playing, looking at the fact that uh, Michael Pittman is really their only viable receiving option who's come out here. Paris Campbell is running wind sprints out there. He's never being targeted. He has the lowest target per route rate in the NFL right now. Uh, Alec Pierce, second round pick, maybe he can add something when it comes to explosiveness down the field. Uh, he would be a guy who can do that. He's an athletic dude. Um, but he hasn't shown a whole lot so far for them and hasn't been able to get on the field enough because of some injury concerns. So he has a possibility, but I'm a little dubious on the Colts ability to pr pr produce those um, explosive plays, which would have them even further down my ranking. So I have the Tennessee being about four points per game better than Indianapolis so far this year and Indianapolis while better in my prior, not being significantly better. I see these as being pretty equivalent type of teams at best equivalent type of teams and when you look at that and then you say okay they're equivalent type of teams yet the Colts are favored not only we're over that key number at three and a half I'm going to take that with Tennessee I'm going to take that Henry if he gets things going Tannehill playing well quarterback big quarterback advantage in my mind seems like an easy one for me although of course there are injury concerns Titans defense hasn't been great. If you are going to get going versus anyone for the Colts, it could be this week. But for me, that's just a little bit too much to go for. All right. And the last one here, this is more of a lean than anything else. But according to my numbers, Cleveland Browns plus one at Atlanta. This is another one that falls between the threes. So it's a little sticky as far as I'm sorry, no, minus one. They're actually favored by a point here. But again, it doesn't really matter that much. One in either direction. I mean, it matters, but it doesn't matter that much in, in either direction here. I have them being, they should be more like a four-point favorite or over three, over the key number three favorite here. And both teams have really exceeded expectations so far this year. If you look at how they've performed in these games, especially offensively, would be what we did not expect coming into the season. Uh, the Falcons have been sixth as far as their adjusted score per game offensively. 
And the Cleveland Browns are third, tied for third with the LA Rams, believe that or not. They've been highly successful. Um, some of that is probably overrating them because of the fact, again, in, in, similar to the Colts, the explosive plays are going to come mainly through the running game. But the difference is they're actually getting some explosive plays through the running game. And the explosive plays through the passing game, I wouldn't have expected a ton from them. But, you know, Mari Cooper had multiple, uh, I think he had three 15-plus catches last week. He's been good a couple of weeks in a row here. He is providing some explosive plays for them, which is something they really missed at the end of last season after Beckham was was gone. They had no one to provide that sort of thing. You would hope maybe um, maybe someone, you know, like David Bell's not going to produce that. David Njoku, maybe a tight end, can produce some of that. But uh, it, it did a good job from Cooper as far as being able to produce some of that going forward. And the Browns, believe it or not, have been top 10 defensively too. Now, they've had the easiest schedule in the NFL so far this season. So that's part of it. Facing Trubisky, facing, you know, Flacco, facing Baker and that offense hasn't been a tough lift for them. But even when I adjust off of that, I have them playing like a top 10 team so far this season. And Atlanta's playing like a top half team so far this season. So good, but not good enough. Along with the fact that my prior on Atlanta is really, really low. But that could be wrong. I mean, I like Mariota. I had him as a top 20 type of quarterback and my assumption coming into the season. So I didn't have him that low, but so far Mariota is playing extremely well so far this year. In fact, the Atlanta Falcons offense has the second highest um, success rate in the NFL right now. Second best success rate in the NFL offensively. And they can get some explosive plays with Kyle Pitts, with Cordell, Cordero Patterson, with uh, Drake London, who I believe has been, He's my pick for, I think, Offensive Rookie of the Year so far, even though Chris Olave got the, the monthly award. They do have some weapons there. So it's not a gimme again. It's more of a lean for me. But I think that's enough there to say that the Browns are the team that should be favored in this game by a little bit more than what we're seeing so far, primarily because Atlanta's defense is that bad. I don't have a lot of confidence in Jacoby Brissett, but Atlanta's defense has been 31st so far, according to my adjusted scores. Again, two teams outproducing, but I'm going to take the Browns in this one. All right, those are my three, again, recreational plays that I'm looking at this weekend. I'll be back here on Monday morning to review all of the games, go through all of the adjusted scores, tell you and your why your team one when they shouldn't have or lost when they shouldn't have quite often on here and everyone gets upset no matter what's happening there. But giving you that information, which will help make you hopefully a little bit smarter as far as what happened here and better to project going forward. If you enjoy what you're seeing here, you know, click the thumbs up on YouTube. If you're watching live, I appreciate that. Uh, go ahead, rate, review the pod elsewhere. And otherwise, I'll be talking to everyone come Monday. Thanks so much, everybody.